Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Welcome back to our study in John's Gospel. Last time we made our way through to chapter 16 and verses 1 through 4. Um, Today I hope to cover chapter 16 and 17, so it might be worth pausing the presentation at this point in time and just taking your Bible and reading through those two chapters. The fact that we even have this portion of John's Gospel, the, the portion that we call the Farewell Discourse, is probably quite miraculous. These were men who were deeply troubled and the impending, uh, the background is impending bereavement. How is it that in such a time of turmoil and trauma that they would remember anything that Jesus said even a week later, let alone decades later when John is actually recording this, this, these chapters? In John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said. I wonder that this discourse isn't actually a fulfillment of those words and of that promise. Jesus had made it abundantly clear to his disciples that the hatred of the world toward them would be the inevitable logical consequence of their choosing to follow him. They would be expelled from the synagogues as the blind man had been in John chapter 9. They would be executed as James would later be in Acts chapter 12. Such hatred, Jesus said, was the consequence of ignorance and unbelief. In this portion, the disciples are overwhelmed with sadness and sorrow. And in verse 6 it says, You're filled with grief because I have said these things. In order to dispel the gloom, Jesus informs them that his imminent departure wasn't just an inevitable calamity that they had to endure, but it was the necessary progress of his uh, wider mission. So in verse 7, he says to them, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. It's expedient. One translation says, it's better for you. This is the same Greek word that was used in John chapter 11, verse 50, when Caiaphas, the high priest, said it was to everybody's advantage if Jesus were to die. I suspect that the disciples were probably stunned by Jesus' suggestion. How could it possibly be to their advantage for Jesus to go, for them to leave, and for them to lose Jesus' presence, his power, and his peace? The reason Jesus said it would be to their advantage was that through the death and resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit would be coming to them. The Holy Spirit would take everything that belonged to Jesus and make it available to his disciples. So in verse 14 and 15 it says, He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. In Romans chapter 8 verse 9, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And with Christ's departure, if I could put it this way, the singular Christ is taken away, but the Holy Spirit brings to us the corporate Christ. Jesus in his humanity was clearly and obviously limited in time and space, but the Holy Spirit is not. And what he does is he brings and produces 
in us the character of Christ, the power of Christ, and the authority of Christ. He brings to us the character of Christ. We call that the fruit of the Spirit. It could just as easily and truthfully be called the character of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 and 23, we are told the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and of course, self-control. Already in this discourse, Jesus had promised to his disciples his peace in chapter 14, verse 27, his love in chapter 15 and verse 9, and his joy in chapter 15 and verse 11. We could just as easily have talked about Jesus' long-suffering, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his self-control. Those things are his character, the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings that to us. He brings and releases to us the power of Jesus. We call that the gifts of the Spirit. We could just as easily and truthfully call them the gifts of Jesus' power. They are ministered to us and among us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, the gifts of faith, healings, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirit, tongues, interpretation of tongues. This is the power of Jesus. The Holy Spirit also brings to us and releases the authority of Christ. These are the ministry gifts of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 12. The apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, the evangelist. Jesus was all of those things. After and as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit would come to the disciples and because of his ministry, every local church, every gathering of believers could truly say Jesus is among us in terms of character, power and authority. In outlining the Holy Spirit's ministry, Jesus uses three main verbs. He will convict us. That's prime. He will, he will convict. Sorry, in verse eight, that is primarily his relationship to the world. He will guide in verse thirteen. That's his relationship toward believers. And he shall glorify in verse fourteen. And that's his relationship to Christ. So verses 8 through 11 read, When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. This is actually the only time the Holy Spirit is spoken of as performing a work to and in the world as the place of rebellion and resistance toward God. And it says he will convict the world. This conviction touches three realms, sin, righteousness and judgment. So firstly, of sin because they do not believe in me. The message translation says, he will show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin. If Jesus is the Son of God, as John's Gospel has clearly declared him to be, then their refusal and reject rejection of him is their greatest, most heinous, and most fatal of sins. That rejection and refusal is, is rooted in a love of and a commitment to darkness. In John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, the Bible says, Light has come into the world, and men have loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. It's interesting, but the Greek word for love in that text is the word agapeo, which is used to describe the self-giving, sacrificial love of God. But there is another kind of self-giving, sacrificial love. Isaiah, in chapter 47, verse 8, describes people who are totally given over to pleasures, self-sacrificing themselves for pleasure. In 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 4, it speaks of those who are lovers of pleasure. People refuse to love and give themselves to God because they love and have given themselves to other things. More often than not, their rejection is not the result of ignorance, misfortune, or, ch- or, ch- or fate. It is a chosen ignorance. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul described them as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Or as the message translation says, people put a shroud over truth. The problem in this case isn't so much mental as it is moral. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 goes on to say they refused God and they refused to glorify him and were not thankful. As a result, they became futile in their thinking and their minds and foolish hearts were darkened. The biblical principle is you resemble what you reveal. They loved darkness and therefore became dark. I think it was C.S. Lewis who once said lost souls will be what they willed to be and they will have what they loved. I believe that Christ is self-authenticating and those who reject him do so because they don't want him and aren't willing to embrace the consequences of following him. Secondly, Jesus says he will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Going to the Father, of course, involves the threefold event of crucifixion, resurrection and ascension. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus was the vindication of the Father regarding his character. And again in Romans chapter 1 verse 3 and 4 it says, Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed or declared to be the Son of God in, the pow- in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The world said that Jesus was an imposter, that he was in the wrong. The Father declared him to be in the right, and therefore the world to be in the wrong. Clearly in this passage, Paul was saying God would not have raised up an imposter. The fact that God has raised him from the dead is his vindication. Because you and I are in Christ, his exaltation and vindication is ours, and we also are declared to be in the right. That's actually what the whole idea of justification means. The Holy Spirit will convict men that Jesus is in the right, and therefore they are in the wrong. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The death and resurrection of the Son of God was a judgment and a condemnation of Satan and his powers and all of those who align themselves with him. As we are in the right in our master because we align ourselves with him, they are in the wrong because they align themselves with their master and therefore are condemned along with him. 
In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, the Amplified Bible reads, Because he has set a day when he will judge the inhabited world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and destined for the task. And he has provided credible credible proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. The background for Jesus' statements concerning this conviction of the world is actually forensic. It is the background of the courtroom. In John chapter 14, we saw the Holy Spirit as our advocate, our defense lawyer, if you like, verse 26 of chapter 14. Here in these verses, he is on the offensive. He is the world's prosecutor. In verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the introductory statement and charges laid down in the courtroom. Verses 9 through 11 outlines the specific charges, unbelief, unrighteousness, and rebellion. And what the Holy Spirit does here is he turns the table on the world and he becomes the plaintiff in God's accusation against the world. In verses 12 through 15, we see the Holy Spirit's ministry and relationship to and with believers. John chapter 14 verse 17 has already introduced the Holy Spirit's ministry to believers where it says the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him because he dwells with you and he shall be in you. Now those prepositions are very illuminating. He is with you and he shall be in you. At present, the disciples, pre-Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit is said to be with them. After that, he will be in them. Now, I know that sounds a little mysterious, but we need to view those prepositions with and then in through the lens of John 7.39, which says, But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that opens the possibility for the outpoured spirit, which changes the dynamic of the divine presence. Pre that uh, experience, the Holy Spirit was with them after he was going to be in them. You know, if you ever get the opportunity to learn another language, you'll find that prepositions are particularly important. Nouns tell you what objects are, Verbs tell you what objects do. Preposition tells you what the relationship of the objects are one to another. And it's a fascinating study to look at the prepositions that the scripture uses to describe the relationship that the Holy Spirit has with believers. And it's, it's all-encompassing. There's, there's the preposition peri, which is around. And it's used in John 15, 26. He will testify around of Jesus. There's epi, E-P-I, and it means to be upon. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, it says, He, the Holy Spirit, will come upon you. There's ek, E-K, which means out of. And in John chapter 7, verse 38, it says, Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Again, referring to the Holy Spirit. There's apo, which means to be away from. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it says the Holy Spirit will be sent from or out of heaven. 
There's dia, D-I-A, which means through. And, and this means that the Holy Spirit will penetrate right through us, that he will flow through us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will flow through you by the Spirit. There's the preposition hupo, which means to be under. In Luke chapter 2, verse 26, revealed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit under us, guiding and leading. There's the word para, which means beside. John chapter 15, verse 26, who proceeds from or para the Holy Spirit, the Father, from beside the Father. There's the word is, E-I-S, which means into. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, he has given the Holy Spirit into us. There's the preposition pros, P-R-O-S, which means toward. John chapter 16, verse 7, I will send him pros to you, toward you. There's the preposition in, E-N, in John 14, 17, and it means to be in. He shall be in you. And then there's another preposition, hupo, which means to be over. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, we have the Holy Spirit's intercession for or over you. Those prepositions give an incredible idea of the encompassing presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit in believers. He will, he, he, pre-Pentecost, he's, he's with them. After Pentecost, he is in them. And it says in verse 13, he will guide them into all truth. He will guide believers into all truth. The Greek word for guide there was sometimes used colloquially to describe someone taking the hand of a blind man in order to lead them. I think that's a very appropriate description of how he leads us. For on so many occasions, we're blinded to the possibilities, to the truth, to the things that are happening around us. And so kindly, so graciously, he takes our hand and he leads us into all truth. I think first and foremost, that has the idea of a full revelation of God's character, of Christ's character, for he is the truth. I think it also has the idea of how he leads us in our daily lives. Romans chapter 8 verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He delights to lead and guide us. I really like the Passion translation of that verse which says, the mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit is incredibly wise in his leading of believers. Not just in the in terms of the manner in which he leads us, but off, but also how often he he leads us. You know, some believers mis mysteriously give the impression that the Holy Spirit leads them almost every second minute of the day, telling them what to eat for breakfast, what to wear, and so on. I, I would want to suggest to you that he's not like a helicopter a parent who hovers over us over us, directing every move that we make, a kind of benevolent tyrant that ultimately snuffs out initiative and personality. In his divine wisdom, he does lead us, and yet at the same time, he develops us as mature, free, self-choosing, creative personalities. In my experience, he's been there in the crucial moments when I have really needed his leading. And yet, most of the time, or much of the time, he leaves me with a considerable degree of freedom. Perhaps, at times, even more freedom than I feel comfortable with. In verse 13, it says, he will speak to us of things to come. 
just as Jesus in this discourse prepares his disciples for what is about to come, the coming passion, there are times when the Holy Spirit will warn us of significant seasons that we are about to enter into. In verse 13, it also says he will not speak of his own. Now, that simply means that he doesn't act or speak independently on his own authority. Jesus had actually said exactly the same thing concerning himself. In John chapter 12, verse 49, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. And in John 15, verse 15, everything I learned about my Father or from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus said that he said the things he heard his father saying and did the things that he saw his father doing. It's exactly the same with the Holy Spirit. He says the things that Jesus is saying and he does the things that Jesus is doing. He is the agent of Jesus, active in and through the believing community. In verse 14 it says, and he will glorify me. You know, the Holy Spirit's great passion is to magnify, to mediate, and to minister Jesus Christ. Verse 14, it says, He will take of what is mine, and he will declare it to you. Whatever belongs to me, Jesus is saying, he will bring it to you and share it with you. All that the Father has, he shared with me, and I have shared it with you. All that Jesus has, he shares with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit shares it with us. You know, in that famous parable in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, at the end of the story, the father is speaking to the older brother who has become as rebellious and resistant as the younger son was earlier in the parable. And in verse 31, he says, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have has been yours. You know, the older brother had access to all of the father's resources, but he never saw it. He never drew on it. His wrong perception of the father meant that he was barred from the fellowship of sharing in in the Trinity. God is a generous God. He shares what he has with the son, who shares it with the spirit, who shares it with the believing community. We have riches at our resources beyond our imagination, but so often our wrong perception of our Father means that we are barred from it. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher, once told a story of visiting a very, very poor lady in his congregation. She'd been for most of her life a cleaning lady for a very rich man. He had recently died and her small income had been lost. She proudly showed Spurgeon, her pastor, a certificate that the master had given her before he died. Being illiterate, she had no idea of what it said, and she assumed that it was a note of thanks and appreciation. It was, in fact, the title deed for his stately home and all his possessions. He had left all his worldly gifts to this faithful servant. She was completely ignorant of the fact and was living hand-to-mouth in poverty, when in actual fact she was wealthy beyond her wildest dreams. You know what, I suspect the same is true for many of us. In verses 16 through 22 it reads, A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said therefore, What is this that he's saying? A little while. We don't, we don't know what he's saying. 
Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Clearly, the disciples were once again confused by what Jesus was saying, but they were somewhat reticent to ask him. I think perhaps because some of their other questions had been so patently foolish that their ignorance had been revealed and they, they weren't keen to repeat the dose. But Jesus is aware, and so he tries to explain again this next season that they're about to face. And he uses the idea of a woman in travail, a woman giving birth. Remember, at that time, most births, of course, would be home births. There weren't any facilities like birthing clinics. Home, home births were the way things were done. And most of these men would have seen women giving birth, either their mothers giving birth to siblings or their wives giving birth to their own children. Jesus, as the oldest of, uh, of the children in Mary and Joseph's household, had probably been present when Mary was giving birth to his half-siblings. And he takes that familiar experience. It, as it is, as it were, Jesus saying, I can see on your faces the same strain that I saw on my mother's face as she struggled to give birth. Your face, after the season of travail, will change in the same way that my mother's face changed after the birth of the child. Travail gives way to joy. The emptied tomb will have the same impact as the emptied womb. The result is relief and a joy that can't be taken from you. Be, be patient, be faithful, Jesus is saying, during this season of travail because it will change. I guess we all struggle to see God's purposes come to birth. There's travail that I guess all of our souls know to some degree. Paul spoke about that travail that he endured when he waited to see Christ formed in the congregations that he was responsible for. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19 he said, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. When I see you after the resurrection, Jesus is saying, your hearts will rejoice and nobody will take your joy from you. In verses 23 verse through 28, it says, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I will say to you, whatever you ask the, the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in fig figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I shall pray for the Father, to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. Jesus' resurrection will introduce 
to his disciples a new and deeper fellowship with the Father. The word Father is mentioned six times in these few verses, and this new relationship will primarily impact their prayer life. Boldness and confidence can now characterize our approach because of what Jesus has done. Remember, Philip was a little concerned as to what the Father, in fact, would be like. Show us the Father, he said to Jesus. Now we know the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And as a result of that, confidence and boldness can be there and our portion. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19, the message translation says, So friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice and act as, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is his body. So let's do it, full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. In verses 29 through 33, the disciples said to him, See now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we're sure that you know all things and have no need that any should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Just as Jesus knew their questions in verse 19, he also knows their weaknesses, as we see in verse 32. They are about to be tested, and he knew in that testing that they would both strain and then break. Nevertheless, he finishes this discourse in the same way that he started it. Remember how he started? Let not your hearts be troubled. Here he says, be of good cheer. You will fail, but you will ultimately win because of me. I have overcome all that the world has to throw at you. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, in me, you will win. So we move now on to chapter 17, and this chapter marks the decisive turning point between Jesus' public ministry and, and his passion. He's finished speaking to the disciples and to the world, and he now turns to talk to his Father. Here we have Jesus in prayer, and this prayer is unique to John's Gospel. G. Cabinball Morgan says, in this chapter, we are at the center of all sanctities. This is truly holy ground, and this is the real Lord's Prayer. The, the passage that we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is probably better thought of or described as the disciples' prayer taught to us by Jesus. This is, in chapter 17, the Lord's Prayer. Now, we all know that prayer was a vital, ongoing part of Jesus' life and ministry, and the Gospels have Jesus praying frequently. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, chapter 19, verse 13, chapter 26, verses 36 and following, chapter 27, verse 46, have Jesus praying. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 35, chapter 6, verse 46, chapter 14, verse 32 and following, and chapter 15 and verse 34. In Luke, even more, chapter 3, verse 21, chapter 5, verse 16, chapter 6, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 18 and verses 28 and 29, chapter 11, verse 1, 
chapter 22 verses 41 through 45, chapter 24 verse 46. And the Greek tense has the idea of he was constantly praying. Most often on those occasions we aren't party to the content of his prayer. On a couple of occasions we are given a brief portion, a small portion of what he prayed. So in Matthew chapter 11 verse 25 it says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Just a small uh, portion of what he prayed. And in chapter 11, verse 41 and 42, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of these people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So we know that he prayed. We have very small portions of what he prayed, but here in chapter 17, this is unique. We get this incredible insight into Jesus's prayer life, or at least in this instance, this prayer. The prayer in chapter 17 can be divided into three movements. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself, and the burden of this prayer is that he might be glorified. In chapter, in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his current disciples, and the burden of that prayer is that they might be kept and sanctified. And in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for future believers, for, for you and me. And the burden of that prayer is that they, they or we might be unified. That he might be glorified, that his current disciples might be kept and sanctified, and that we might be unified. This prayer has sometimes been called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And the reason for that is on the Day of Atonement, the most solemn day in the Jewish calendar, called Yom Kippur. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. The high priest would pray three prayers. He prayed for himself, he prayed for his fellow priests, and then he prayed for the people. Once those prayers were offered, he would go out and kill the appointed sacrifices for that solemn and sacred day. He prays essentially for the same groups that Jesus prayed for, and then goes out and sacrifices the animal. Jesus prays for himself, for his current disciples, and for all future disciples. Once having prayed that prayer, he also goes out to sacrifice, not the sacrifice of an animal, but to offer himself as sacrifice. He starts off the prayer, Father, the hour has come. Now we've seen that through the study how that idea of the hour is a recurring theme. There were a number of times in the early parts of John's Gospel where he spoke of his hour not yet having come. In chapter 2 verse 4, in chapter 7 verse 30, and in chapter 8 verse 20. On each occasion my hour has not yet come. In the shadow of the cross we saw how that begins to change and he starts speaking of the season. The hour has now come. Chapter 12 verse 23, chapter 13 verse 1, and here chapter 17 verse 1. The hour has come. And Jesus begins to pray for himself. Verses 1 through 5. He starts, Father, glorify your son. I think at first that seems perhaps somewhat a surprising prayer. Give me glory. Give me honor. 
Perhaps on anybody else's lips, it would be quite outrageous, blasphemous even. But on Jesus's part, we know that it's not a self-seeking, grasping prayer. There's no self-seeking in his life or in his prayer. He asks for glory so that in actual fact, he can give it back to his father. The message translation says, display the bright splendor of your son so that your son in turn may show your bright splendor. Though we haven't focused on it in this study, glory is one of the key themes of John's Gospel. Richard Balcom calls his book on John's Gospel the Gospel of Glory. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kabod. The Greek word is the word doxa or doxadzo. Doxa is used 19 times in John's Gospel. Doxadzo is used 23 times in John's Gospel. More than half of those occurrences are found in the shadow of the cross, chapters 12 through 17, and there are eight of those occurrences in this chapter alone. So when it comes to the idea of glory, of course you think, well, what, what is it? And there are three shades, if you like, to the meaning of the word or the concept of glory. There's, of course, the idea of luminosity, of, of visible splendor, which is often what we tend to think of when we think of glory. When we think of the glory of God coming down on the tabernacle or the temple, our ideas are of a bright cloud, of, of luminosity, of, of splendor. The second idea, however, is, is of, of weight, of substance. Um, in our... Um, uh, Māori language, in Toreo, we have the word mana. We talk of a person being uh, or, or having mana, which means they have substance, they, ha they have weight. The third meaning is that of essence. I, I, when Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 33, 34, if you want to read the story, to experience God's glory, the Septuagint translation, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, have his, has his prayer as, Lord, show me not your glory, but show me yourself. Show me the essence of who you are. Of course, if you know that story, God hears Moses in prayer and says that he's going to answer it. In verses 5 and 6 of chapter 34, it says, The Lord descended in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed to him audibly the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. So God's glory is the radiance, the essence, the weight, if you like, of actually who he is. Moses heard it audibly. He didn't see it visibly. God had to cover him so that he wouldn't be destroyed by the experience. But in Jesus, the audible becomes visible. Remember John chapter 1 verse 14 in the prologue. We beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Not so much luminosity, visible and splendor, although they saw that on the Mount of Transfiguration, but the weight, the essence of who God is in Jesus. Jesus said the signs that he performed were a manifestation of God's glory, of the essence of his character. You see that in chapter 2, verse 11, with the turning of water into wine, and the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, verse 4 and verse 40. They speak of those signs being a manifestation of God's glory, the essence of who he is. You know, how do you know somebody? You know them by what they say and what they do. 
And what Jesus did was a manifestation of the essence, the, the selfhood, if you like, of who God is. It seems that we all long for glory, not, not visible splendor, not luminosity, although it can descend into that, and I think that's something that has, you know, to speak to our celebrity culture. But more to the point, we look for substance. We long for for weight. We long that the essence of who we are has something substantial to it. We can seek that negatively. And you see through the gospel people seeking for that weight uh, in, in ways that are... Are not productive. It says in chapter 5, verse 41, that we can seek it from people. There are people who seek the glory that comes from men. In chapter 5, verse 44, we can seek it from one another. We can seek our own glory. Chapter 7, verses 18, and chapter 8, verse 50. There are people who glorify themselves. Chapter 8, verse 54. We love the glory that comes from others. Chapter 12, verse 43. The common denominator in seeking glory from those sources, from those negative sources, is that they are all self-centered. Jesus didn't seek glory in that manner or from those sources. He sought only the glory that came from God alone. Chapter 5, verse 44, chapter 7, verse 18, chapter 12, verse 43. It was as if Jesus lived before an audience of one. He sought the weight that came from his Father. His seeking of glory, if you like, if I can put it that way, is not self-centered, but God-centered. And I find it really significant that with the cross immediately before him, Jesus prays that through this event, God will glorify him through it and will reveal the Father's glory. Jesus looks for glory in a place that we would least expect to find it. How is it that the cross can bring glory to the Son and through him glory to the Father? How is it that the cross reveals the very essence of who God is? At the time, the cross was an instrument of ignominy, of, of shame. It was utterly humiliating and shameful. And yet it is through the cross that we see the self-emptying love of God. It's through the cross that that's revealed. And we get an insight into the very essence of who God is. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul, in that famous passage, says, Speaking of Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That, that rendering, when you think about it, seems like this was a one-off act, not in keeping with his essential nature. In the same way that you might say, though he was the CEO of the company, occasionally he went down to the cafeteria and humiliated himself by having lunch with the ordinary employees. Actually, that translation would be, would be better read because he was in the form of God rather than though he was in the form of God. Hawthorne translates it this way. Precisely because he was in the form of God, he gave up equality with God and came to the cross. This is how God functions normally. This isn't an exceptional action in spite of the fact that they are God, but this action is pr precisely because he is God. And we see Jesus going to the cross, the self-emptying love of God, as an insight into the essential nature of who God is. 
It's interesting to say the least that as we listen in to God praying to God, we get a real insight into Jesus's self-identity, his self-understanding of of who he is, as it were. And if you look at the prayer, there is item after item that gives us an insight into who Jesus understood he was. So we see, for example, number one, that he's the Father's Son. In verse 1, 5 and 11. In verse 21, 24 and 25, he speaks of his Father, of his Abba. It's a very intimate term. And yet, although it's intimate, it's not flippant. He doesn't come, hey, Pops, you know, these half-converted cowboys who talk about the man upstairs or, or Big G. You, you know, there is an intimacy that is not flippant, and there's a flippancy that is not intimacy. Jesus not only calls the Father Abba, but he says, Holy Father. He says, Righteous Father. Not only does he see himself as the Father's Son, but in Secondly, he is the pre-existent one. He sees himself as pre-existent. So in verse 5, he says, The glory which I had with thee before the world was. And in chapter 20, in verse 24, You loved me before the foundation of the world. This, this is the echoes of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of that before creation came into being. Thirdly, he sees himself as the one who has been sent. In verse 8, I came out from you, and they have believed that you did send me. Interestingly, the Greek word there is apostolo, from which we get our English word apostolic. I mentioned before that, that the Holy Spirit brings to us the authority of Christ. He was the apostle. In, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, it talks about Jesus being the apostle. He, he was also the prophet, the pastor, the evangelist, and, and the greatest teacher that we've ever known. But he's the apostolo. He comes as the ambassador of the Father, the sent one. The preposition, by the way, from the Father is the Hebrew word para, and it has the idea of coming from beside somebody, being in close proximity with somebody and coming out from that place. Number four, it says he has authority over all flesh. In verse two, he says, you have given me authority over all flesh. He knows who he is. He knows what he has. But it's how he uses that authority that distinguishes him from the tyrants that have marched across the stage of history through the years. They use that authority and that they had over people for self-serving, self-glorifying ends. Jesus comes as the sacrificial servant and gives us an idea and an insight into the essence of God. <clears throat> He, he comes and uses that authority to give eternal life to people. So verse 2 says that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. <clears throat> as you've heard me say, eternal life is one of those trademark phrases of John's gospel. It occurs 17 times. Zoe, as opposed to bios, just physical life. And the authority that he has over all flesh is that he might give eternal life, Zoe, to those who will put their trust in him. He defines that eternal life in verse 3, where he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. <clears throat> Excuse me. The word to know is about relational connectedness rather than just simply cognitive understanding. 
In the Hebrew language, I'm sure you're aware, the word no is used to describe sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. In Genesis chapter one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. So to know entails fellowship, trust, faith. It's a deep, intimate, personal relationship. To know God is to be transformed and thus to be introduced to a quality of life that could not be otherwise experienced. D.A. Carson in his work on John puts it this way, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as it is personal knowledge of the everlasting one. John emphasizes that the possession of eternal life is not relegated to a time after death. In John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, eternal, everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. In John's uh, gospel, the distinction between the present age and the age to come is collapsed with and into Jesus. He's the future, the end, that has arrived in the present, in the middle, if you like, and eternal life has now entered human existence because of Christ in the here and now. You can know that with certainty. You can have that security of having passed from death to life. In verse 4, Jesus celebrates the fact that he has accomplished the work that his father sent him to do. I finished the work which you have given me to do. That word finished is the Greek word uh, teleo, and it comes from the word telos, which means I've reached the goal. I've, I've reached the course, or, or I have arrived at my intended purpose. Now, of course, there remains a very huge and awful task awaiting him the very next day. But he has brought to a conclusion, to completion, the deeds and the words that his father gave him to say and do. The following day, of course, he will finish the ultimate part as well. And in John chapter 19, verse 30, we have him saying from the cross, it is finished. So we get an insight into who Jesus understood himself to be. From verse 6, he begins to pray for his disciples. Firstly, he prays for his current disciples. Secondly, he prays for his future disciples. Just as in Jesus' prayer for himself, we gain an insight into his self-identity. As he prays for his disciples, the current ones and then the future ones, we get a profound insight into how he perceives our identity, who we are meant to be. So firstly, we are the ones who are given by the Father to Jesus as a gift. Verse 6, it says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's almost as if the Father has agreed with the Son that if he would give his life and dedicate himself selflessly to God's purposes, then God in turn, God the Father, would give Jesus a people who would give up their lives and dedicate themselves selflessly for his purposes. So Jesus is the Father's gift to us. We are the Father's gift to Jesus. So we're a gift. Secondly, we are the enlightened ones. Now that can sound incredibly proud, arrogant, presumptuous. It actually has nothing to do with our abilities or cognitive um, uh, abilities. It has simply to do with pure grace. Verse 6, I have manifested 
your name to them. The Greek word translated by the English word manifest is, is phaneroho, and it means to make manifest or visible, to know what has previously been hidden or unseen. Jesus has revealed the Father's name, his character to his disciples and to us. Verse 7 says, Now they know everything that you have given to me is from you. And in verse 8, They have come to know in truth that I came from you and have believed that you sent me. So there's been revelation to us. Thirdly, we are to be the obedient ones. In verse 6, They have kept your word. Not perfectly, of course, but they did display uh, a commitment, an unreserved uh, commitment to follow him. They, they hadn't displayed a mature conformity to all the details of Jesus' teaching, but they were on a journey as we are. Fourthly, he says, they and we are not of this world. In verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Remember in John's Gospel that the world has a twofold meaning. Firstly, it's just simply the cosmos that God loves, John 3.16. And secondly, it's the people in rebellion and resistance toward God. And here Jesus has in mind the second rather than the first definition. And he says we as disciples don't belong to the world. Not that we've never belonged to the world, but, but that we've been called out of it and delivered from it. Though we are not of it, he nevertheless says they are in it. Verse 11, they are in the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I find it a little surprising that in verse 9, Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. Now, why wouldn't he pray for the world? It's the world that God loves and that has given the Son to redeem. Why would he, why would he not pray for them? But I think perhaps what he's doing here is praying for those who he is sending into the world. It's a perhaps, perhaps a bit like the way we pray for our missionaries. We pray for them so that they can reach their piece of the world. It wasn't that Jesus was ignoring and putting aside the world. It was a needful way of actually loving the world. He's praying for those that he's sending into the world. I think one of the reasons for perhaps praying in this manner is that what has historically been true is that it's God's people that have been the biggest obstacle between God and the world. Sometimes the distinction between God's people and the world has been badly blurred. There's an old saying that says a ship in the sea is normal, but the sea in a ship is disastrous. The church in the world is normal, but the world in the church has historically been disastrous. We are called out to be different. We are not to be driven by the same motivations, values, desires and assumptions that grip and drive the world. We are to be sanctified, which means to be set apart, to be different from. In verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. We are to be set apart for God's use, set apart from evil, but set apart for God and for good. Another thing that we see uh, regarding our self-identity, as Jesus describes it and prays it, is that we are the means by which Jesus is glorified. Verse 10 says, I am glorified in them. He has given us his glory so that it can be revealed in and then through us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, the message translation reads like this. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. 
Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they will be won over to God's side and there will be uh, and and be there to join the celebration when he arrives. The glory in us is to be revealed through us. Another thing that we see about our self-identity is that we are kept in the Father's name. Verse 11 says, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 15, I, <clears throat> I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The Greek word keep or kept is toreo. And it means to guard, and, and it has the idea of a fortress. We actually still use that idea. We talk about, uh, in a castle, an ancient medieval, medieval castle, we talk about a keep. Um, God's name is not just a manifestation of his character, it's also a revelation of his might, of his protecting power. So in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, it says, The name of the Lord is a strong we could say keep it's a strong tower in psalm 20 verse 1 the name of the god of jacob protect you and in psalm 54 verse 1 save me O god by your name we are talking there not just character but but the power of the one who is looking after us and it says in verse 15 we're to be kept from the evil one evil just is not a, an abstract principle it's an appallingly wicked person it isn't something, it's someone. You know, the margin of the prayer in uh, Matthew chapter 6, we, we pray, deliver us from evil. The margin actually says, deliver us from the evil one. There is an evil one, and God's name and God's power is to keep us. Another aspect of our self-identity is uh, are we, uh, we are to be a people who experience his joy. In verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We are also to be a commissioned people. In verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We, we later see Jesus reiterating that in John chapter 20, verse 21, when he says, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. Then one of the key ideas of our self-identity is that we are to be a unified people. Verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. In one sense, as Jesus is praying for his future disciples, this really is the burden of that prayer. Verse 21 23 says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This is an expression of, or a mirroring of, the unity that Father and Son have. We express that, mirror that, and as a result of that, seeing that essence the world are stunned into a place of belief. And yet we all know how poorly we have actually mirrored that aspect of God's essential nature. You know, the world, and I think it seems particularly more so with the advent of social media, but the world is a hopelessly divided place. It was in John's Gospels 
uh, time as well. John in chapter 7 verse 43 says, So there was a division among the people because of him. In chapter 9 verse 16, And there was a division among them. Chapter 10 verse 19, And there was division among them because of these sayings. Disunity is a characteristic of the broader culture, both then and now. In Jesus, his people, we have the miracle of unity. It is an established reality stemming from his indwelling of us as believers. So that's why Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 can boldly declare there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, it's interesting in the scripture, but we are never told to create or organize unity. We are simply called to maintain that which is given to us. So in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, we are exhorted to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. I don't think we've done well. Maybe because we've misunderstood what unity is. Unity is not unanimity. It's not an absolute concord of opinion. I can have unity with you even though I may disagree about a particular issue with you. Unity isn't uniformity. It's not complete similarity. God is not into producing chocolate soldiers. He makes us all as individuals and he invites us to express that individuality. The individuality doesn't have to work against the deeper unity. Unity is not political union either. It's not political affiliation. If we were to scrub all denominations and change our labels, it wouldn't actually create unity even though we had one particular label. Unity is oneness of inner heart and essential purpose through the possession of a common interest and common life and that's been given to us already in Jesus. We are exhorted to keep that, to maintain that. Believers who walk in a revelation of God's character given by Christ cannot must not divide ourselves off from fellow believers. We don't always have to agree with them. We don't always have to look like them. We don't have to be politically aligned with them. But that oneness of heart, that oneness of purpose has to be there. And we have to keep that. The way believers treat one another is an essential component of proclaiming Jesus to the world. When people see this most rarest of things, it says they will believe that Jesus was sent from the Father. Verse 23, and I'll finish with this, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you've sent me. This is the essence of Jesus' prayer, for himself that he might be glorified, that the essence of who the Father is might be shown through him, that his disciples currently might be kept and sanctified, and that his disciples in the future might be unified. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.